but I'm going to read the scripture passage uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning. It continues in uh, these, these, these movements through the Gospel of Mark. So this is from Mark chapter 14, reading verses 12 through 21. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation, but there are all these great translations out there, so if you're following in the New American Standard or the New King James or the New International Version, it's going to be pretty close to what you'll hear from the English Standard Version this morning. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, solemn words, uh, serious words. And yet, within these words, there's your message to us on how to consider your Son, uh, what we should think of Jesus, what we should think of these events which happened uh, 2,000 years ago, and then how we should respond. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds to an understanding. And more than simply an understanding, but a desire to receive your truth, to embrace it, and to follow you, to pursue you, because this honors you, this worships you. It's also what is our greatest eternal good, to trust in Jesus. For that, we would pray, and that as believers, we might prove our own lives that we would be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to remind you that, you know, the gospel of Mark uh, is the story of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the gospel. But this, this story, which in terms of Mark's telling of it, Uh, We know that the earthly ministry of Christ was about three and a half years. Mark focuses mostly on the last year and a half. And now we're down to the last week. 
now we're down to the last few days, that it's a story that contains episodes that within themselves are stories. We need to remember that as we read this, that it's not like a story you might read in a fictional magazine. It's not like a story that you might watch portrayed in a television drama. We're talking about things that really happened. We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about something that took place 2,000 years ago. But these things really happened. And, and to be a good listener, we need to listen in a way in which we connect with a story, even put ourselves into the story, even in the sense that we would be thinking, what would this mean for us? What would this be like for us as we read through the story? Now, that's called reading with sympathy. And, and writers always want you to read with a kind of sympathy. They want you to connect to what they're writing about. They, they want you to get into the story, so to speak. And the Bible is no different. In fact, that's the work of the Holy Spirit to take you into the story in such a way that you realize that what's being said here and the lessons that are being presented here, they speak to you. So as we look at this story, we need to say, well, well, well how should we come to it? What, should we, what would be the best way for us to get into the nature of this story? And of course, when people teach story as literature and so forth, they say, well, come with questions. Ask questions of the story. Now, the central theme here is, is the Passover. This is Thursday. Now, the context here is Sunday is what we call Palm Sunday, but Sunday, that's when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Remember the story? He, he rides on a, on a donkey, comes in. All the people cut off palm branches, and they start singing hallelujahs to Jesus, the son of David. Now it's Thursday. That's what it means here when it talks about this being the, the, the first day of unleavened bread. Remember, Jewish days start at sundown. So this day, Thursday morning, is going to go to sundown. And when sundown happens, it's going to be Friday. Friday, what we call Good Friday. The day that Jesus is going to be crucified. So what takes place on this day is the last day that Jesus is going to be with his disciples. And that's very significant. And this supper is going to be the last meal that Jesus eats with them before his crucifixion. Now, when we think about these things, again, the biblical stories are never random. The biblical stories within the great story of the Bible are never random. They always have God's purposes. That's why we have the Bible. That's why God preserved his word and, and made sure that we would have it. So we read, we ask the right questions, and then we come to this passage where the Passover is the center. What are the questions we should ask? Well, we have the disciples, we have Jesus, we have Judas. Those are the three principal players in this story. So we ask, what did the Passover mean for the disciples? What did this last Passover mean for Jesus? What did this last Passover mean for Judas? 
When we look at these three questions, as we answer these three questions, then there will come together a kind of lesson for us to consider. What's God trying to say to us? What is his purpose for us in hearing this message today? So, first question. What did the Passover mean to the disciples of Jesus? Well, verse 12, we read that the disciples asked Jesus, where are we supposed to prepare the Passover for you? Uh, So they knew that they were going to be observing the Passover with him, and so they're, they're asking him this question. So it's likely, you know, early on Thursday morning that they do this. So what does it mean for the disciples? Well, for all faithful Jews, the Passover was a meal of remembrance. We have to think about the context here. This is 1,500 years later than the very first Passover meal. Uh, that took place when the Jews were slaves in Egypt uh, under Pharaoh. And you know the story of the, the ten great plagues. You know the story of, of Moses and his brother Aaron coming to Pharaoh and basically saying again and again and again, let my people go. And again and again and again, Pharaoh would harden his heart. The scripture also says not only did Pharaoh harden his heart, but God hardened his heart. Again and again, Pharaoh was given opportunities to to escape all of the judgment, to escape the plagues, all that, and Pharaoh chose not to. So a final plague is pronounced upon the, uh, the Egyptians. That final plague is, Pharaoh, let my people go, or the entire land of Egypt is going to suffer the judgment that every firstborn will die. The firstborn of all the beasts and cattle the firstborn of every household in Egypt is going to die. But then God does something to the Israelites, to the Jews. He says, here's what you must do in order to protect yourself from this judgment that's going to come. So there were several requirements that were necessary for the Jews to be protected. So in Exodus 12, it tells us about these things, and almost every one of them had both the meaning in terms of what was going to happen, but it had symbolism connected with it as well. So first, they were supposed to prepare for a meal by taking a a, a spotless lamb, one year old, without any blemish, which was to represent moral purity before God, and it was supposed to be slain at twilight, the end of one day, the beginning of another. The end of the day of slavery the beginning of the day of redemption. And then that blood had to be smeared upon the two side doorposts of the house and then the lintel across the top. Uh, Because that blood would demonstrate symbolically that they were now covered by the blood of that lamb. And then the lamb was going to be roasted and so they're going to do a normal kind of eating, but not a normal kind of eating. Because they had to eat that lamb with unleavened bread. Now, the unleavened bread, leaven was often a symbol for that which was, it was, look, ladies, you bake, you want leaven, you want yeast, right? Because you want the bread to rise. But if you had to bake bread quickly because you had to move quickly, then you would bake it without leaven because you had to rapidly depart. So it would be unleavened bread. So it, it described also the fact that the, That night, the Jews were going to quickly have to leave. But it also represented something else. Leaven had a second kind of symbolic meaning. 
uh, the meaning of contamination or the meaning of sin. And so for seven days after this, they were supposed to eat unleavened bread as a kind of symbol of the fact that they were consecrating themselves, they were repenting of their sins unto the Lord. The night then was called Passover. Because that night, God said, the angel of the Lord will go through all of Egypt, striking down the firstborn in every household. But when it comes to the household of all the Jews, where the blood is properly placed upon the side post and the, and the top piece, the lintel, the angel of death was going to pass over. The blood covered them under the blood so that they would not have this judgment fall upon them. And so that night, what happened? 1,500 years before this day, God led the Jews out of Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. So every year, Jewish families would gather together in remembrance of all that God had done. Remembrance that God in history concretely rescued them from the bondage and slavery of Egypt where they'd spent 400 years and had taken them into the promised land. That God was a God who does what he says he's going to do. God is a God who loves his people. God is a God who's faithful to his promises. So it was not only a looking back, but it was also a looking forward. Because the things that were in the Passover supper especially the Passover lamb, had also a prophetic look toward the future. Now, it was also a meal of significance because for the disciples particularly, as the disciples, because of the supernatural things that sort of surround it. You know what it says in verses 13 through 16. When they asked Jesus, uh, where are we supposed to go to prepare the, the Passover meal for you? Jesus basically says, go into the city of Jerusalem. You're going to find a man who's carrying water, jug of water. Follow him. He'll meet you. Follow him. The house that you go to, simply say to the master of the house, uh, where's the guest room where, uh, where Jesus may have his Passover with his disciples? So Jesus said that he's going to show you to a large upper room that's essentially prepared and waiting for you to finish the preparations for the Passover. That's where they're supposed to prepare the dinner. Now, the disciples, two of them, go into the city. And now, you say, okay, what's so supernatural about meeting a man carrying a jug of water? Because invariably, this was a job of a servant. And invariably, in the day of very defined roles, men do this, women do this, it was always the women who went to get the water, the fresh water for the house. And so to meet a man who's carrying the water, a, a servant who's carrying the water like this, what's well, going to be highly unusual. Jesus is saying, you're going to see this, you're going to meet this man, and he's going to be the one you're supposed to follow. A supernatural knowledge of what was going to be taking place. And so that's how this all falls into play. Now, that's the, it's the second time in five days in which Jesus has done something just like this. Because on Sunday... Early Sunday morning, the disciples and Jesus are heading toward Jerusalem. But before they get there, they come to the villages of Bethphage and Bethany. And Jesus says, before they get there, go into that village. You're going to find a coal, a colt, a, a colt. I'm not a livestock person. You're going to find a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's never been ridden. 
you're going to uh, take that donkey and bring it to me. And when you're asked, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, because you're going to say, the Lord has need of this. And they're going to let you take the donkey, the baby donkey, and, and come. Young donkey. It happens exactly like that. This is the second time in five days that Jesus can give those kind of instructions, and they happen just like that. Now, that's very, very important because what we need to understand is the context here. Um, Jesus has been saying to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him. And then they're going to kill him. And after three days, he's going to rise. Now, Jesus has been telling his disciples, this is what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. And when you read through the story, you realize they're alarmed over this. They're frightened over this. It's like, how in the world could this happen to you? And the fact that Jesus could say ahead of time, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to take place, is a way of saying, even though this is going to happen to me, this is not out of control. This is the mission that the Father has ordained for me. I'm, I'm, I'm following the path that's been presented in Old Testament scriptures. I'm following the path and mission that God has given to me, this is the way. And the disciples don't fully understand it. They, they can't fully get it. But at least knowing that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen gives them great reassurance. The, the third meaning, though, for, this, for the disciples was it's a special time of fellowship and communion with Jesus. Normally... For 1,500 years, the Jews ate the Passover meal with their own families. That's how this was designed. But in this case, the disciples have been invited by Jesus to eat this meal just with him. Now, there's significance in that. Because the disciples' own families were there in Jerusalem because that was the thing that, that brought everyone together. Celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. You can't celebrate it anywhere else. But Jesus' own family was there. We know this because when Jesus is being crucified, his mother Mary is there at the foot of the cross. Jesus chooses to celebrate this meal with his disciples and that means that this meal has a very special significance. It means that Jesus is saying, I count you as my family. And you count me as the head of your family. That our bond and our relationship is the fulfillment of what Passover was supposed to mean. Because ultimately, Passover was fellowship not just as a family. It was fellowship with God. And Jesus is saying, you are having this fellowship and communion with me. Because I am your Lord and I am your Savior. In fact, the strength of Jesus' desire to do this is recorded in the Gospel of Luke Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with 
you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus had this very deep desire to have this kind of table fellowship, celebration of the Passover, the most significant event in all of Old Testament Israel with his disciples. You are my family. You have followed me. I am your Lord. I count you on this particular day even more significant to me at this moment than even my own natural family. It's pretty significant. Now, what did the fellow, what did the meaning, what did the Passover mean to Jesus? This, this is the last Passover Jesus is going to celebrate, and he faithfully celebrated every Passover all throughout his life. What we need to see here is that this is a meal of fulfillment with respect to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus celebrates this Passover, listen carefully. This is the very last Passover. Everything else that's celebrated after this year isn't a Passover. It's an empty ritual that the Jews continue to carry on. How do we know this? The Apostle Paul has told us, he wrote this 25 years later, he said, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They were all pointing to Jesus. And the Passover lamb in a special way was pointing to Jesus because the Passover lamb, the blood of the Passover lamb, was the way in which all of Israel was liberated out of slavery. That was their emancipation. I was thinking, well, you know, what, did, what does Passover mean? I thought, well, in American culture, we could say it would be Christmas and the 4th of July all wrapped up. 4th of July, the celebration of, of our freedom from England. Taxation. Not as bad as slavery. Uh, but still, to the, to the colonists, they felt it was awful. And then Christmas, you know, the time when we celebrate and have a great time. Well, far more significantly than that, Passover, that Jesus fulfilled, meant this is when our true emancipation and freedom from sin has finally come. The disciples only had a dim knowledge of this. They didn't fully understand this, but Jesus did. When he first came and started his public ministry, what did his cousin John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the meaning for Jesus. Jesus is fully aware that every lamb that was slain at twilight in Jerusalem represented what he was going to do the next day on the cross. That Jesus would die for the Jews. He would die for the Gentiles. He would die for all those who are his sheep to fulfill the great prophecy of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. For all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the meaning for Jesus. He was the sacrificial lamb to take away our sin. At the same time that it was a meal of fulfillment, it's also a meal of betrayal. Look at verses 18 and what follows. While eating together, Jesus says this to his disciples. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And the disciples began to be sorrowful and they began to say, uh, is it I? You know, is it I, Lord? And Jesus says to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, the wording there is, is significant in terms of the, the context of, of the Bible times when hospitality and table fellowship were sort of the highest value within the culture. Um, we as Americans, we don't understand this. We, we don't place the same value upon table fellowship and, and having people into the home to eat with us in the same way that the Jews did 2,000 years ago, in the same way many other cultures rate hospitality as one of the most important things that you could ever do with other people. It's so important that to, in any sense, violate that becomes a, a, a truly great uh, form of disrespect. Jesus could not be betrayed any worse than having someone eat with him at table at the same time that he's planning to betray him. And that's why Jesus points out one who dips the bread into the dish with me because that phraseology just hammered home the fact one of you having table fellowship with me, you're going to betray me. Well, so Jesus, in this context, knowing who's going to betray him, is telling us something. He's having this meal with someone who is his enemy. And reminds us what the Apostle Paul has to say about Jesus dying for sinful human beings. In the book of Romans, Paul puts it this way. Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Symbolically represented at the table that Jesus is having fellowship with his disciples is a betrayer, a traitor. Jesus didn't come to die 
for righteous people. Jesus didn't come to die for good people. Jesus came to die for even those who have been his enemies. Which gives hope. It gives hope. No one yet alive today who hates God will necessarily die hating God because God is able to save even the worst of sinners. It's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He hated Jesus. He persecuted the church. He didn't want the name of Jesus to be lifted up and exalted. But God showed him mercy. God saved the Apostle Paul when Paul was Saul, the persecutor, when Saul was his enemy. Jesus died for the ungodly. That's the importance of the message of the gospel. But sadly, what did this Passover mean for Judas? When Judas came to this table with the disciples... He was already involved in betraying Jesus because uh, a day or two before he had already gone to the chief priest and and volunteered to uh, turn Jesus over to them at a favorable time. Now, they were concerned that if they arrested Jesus, there was going to be a big riot in Jerusalem. Very concerned about that. And they didn't want a big riot to then cause the the Roman occupation soldiers to come in and clap down on them. There would have been bloodshed and all sorts of bad things. They were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus in a very stealthy manner and then take him through a kind of kangaroo trumped up court and then convict him and then put him to death. That's the conspiracy that Judas was already involved in. They promised him 30 pieces of silver. The same price that you could buy a slave in the marketplace was the price that Jesus is being sold for by what Judas is doing. And so when Judas comes to this meal, it's, it's a meal that's eaten in hypocrisy. Uh, what was supposed to express fellowship and loyalty and, and, and one's love and friendship, a shared faith in the God of Israel, shared faith in all of God's promises with respect to the coming Messiah, all of that, Judas is eating that meal in contradiction to everything that the Passover represented. He had spent, he's eating this meal in contradiction to the three years that he has virtually lived with Jesus. He's walked with him. He has shared in the ministry of Christ. He has seen Jesus perform many, many miraculous wonders, healing the blind, uh, even raising the dead, uh, helping uh, deaf people to hear and blind people to see and lame people to walk and walking on the waters and casting out demons. Judas has had a front row seat to everything that Jesus has done. He has seen Jesus show exceptional compassion and kindness to people who are basically the untouchables of society. And what was Judas seeing? 
he was seeing exactly what God is like when God became a man. God was in Christ. And Judas is seeing God in human form, the incarnation. Yet Judas, seeing this, never embraced Jesus. He never embraced the goodness and righteousness of Christ. And, and the only way we can understand that is, is to consider what, what, what the Apostle John wrote in his gospel story where he says, and this is the judgment. The light, meaning Jesus, has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Judas loved the darkness rather than the light that was in Jesus because his deeds were evil. John goes on to say, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And so Judas, we know Judas was doing some wicked things. We know that he held a treasury bag of the disciples and he used to pilfer from it. The Gospels tell us that. But So Judas, he hates the light. He hates the light that is in Jesus. Have you ever, as a Christian, just tried to live your life and not said anything about Jesus, but just lived, you know, a, a pretty decent life in front of others and then have someone say, quit preaching to me. Quit preaching at me. Have you ever had that? Some of us have had that kind of experience where I didn't say a word about Jesus and now I'm getting blamed for preaching him. But sometimes people see an uncommon goodness in others and it is a reproach to them. Well, if that can happen at the human level and none of us show the light of Jesus the way Jesus showed the true light, how much more we see this reaction in Judas whose heart was so hardened against the goodness and kindness and sweetness and gentleness and righteousness and authority of Christ. So this meal then, finally, is the meal that seals Judas's destiny. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. The words are sobering. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Now, Jesus is the Son of Man. As it is written of him means all the hundreds of prophecies about how Jesus was going to come into this world, what his life was going to be like, what he was going to accomplish. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God had uh, put in Scripture already the purpose and plan and mission of Christ. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Jesus is saying this. Judas is hearing this. Judas is hearing Jesus say, I know what you are about to do. But be warned. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of God. It would have been better if that man had never been born. Do you understand how in the plane of history and in the life of Judas, that was a reckoning point? Do you understand that as clear as possible 
Jesus was saying, you take this step and you have utterly doomed your soul. Now, that was graciousness on the part of Jesus to give that final warning to Judas. But we know the story. We know that Judas, even though he hears these somber words of Jesus, chooses darkness rather than light. The choice that Judas makes at that moment reveals like no other choice exactly the kind of person Judas was. Judas chose the path of betrayal. He chose the path of hell. So what then is the lesson for us? Like the story that we read and looked at last week, two reactions, two relationships, two responses to Jesus. The side of fellowship or the side of betrayal. There will be only two destinies when we die. There will be the destiny that takes us into the presence of the God who loved us and sent his son into this world to redeem us. Or there will be the destiny that Judas himself chose. Eternal separation from God. Eternal punishment from the presence of God. The lesson here is to remind all of us, if you're a Christian, you didn't make this choice because you're better than Judas. You have come to Christ because of God's great mercy toward you. And His grace worked in your heart and, and God's Spirit brought you to the point of being able to say, I need everything that Jesus is. And so your salvation is not something that you've achieved. It's not something you've accomplished. It's not something you can boast in. You can only boast in Christ, not yourself ever. But if you're not a Christian, you've got to take seriously the story. There's not heaven and then some limbo land and then hell. The story that is presented here tells us there's the narrow way through Christ that leads to everlasting life. There's the broad way of the world where people love darkness rather than light leading to everlasting perdition. So believers... Listen carefully. Are you living your life in such a way that the Jesus you present to people is a Jesus that is truly the Christ of the Scriptures? A Jesus who loved sinful human beings? A Jesus who was willing to die for sinful human beings? A Jesus full of mercy and grace. A Jesus all sufficient to cover all of our sins. Is that 
the Jesus you're loving and following and living so that when people see you, they see that Jesus? Isn't that what we want? Only by the grace of God can we ever be that. We can't make ourselves that way. We've got to pray, God, work in me that way. And if you're not a Christian, it's so worth thinking about the fate of Judas. You know, Judas only lived a day and a half longer. Committed suicide. None of us know if we have ten more minutes of life because we don't control the future. We don't know the future like Jesus did. And so that's why in any situation when we come to the point of recognizing life and death, Christ received, Christ rejected. It's a time of decision. And that decision, no one can make for you. That choice to place your faith in Jesus is the kind of work that you, through the Holy Spirit, must make with the eternal God himself and his Son. May the grace of God work in all of us to come to that reckoning with Jesus that gives us everlasting life. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, enable us, we pray, to simply rest in all that Jesus has done Jesus, work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And, O Holy Spirit, move upon our hearts, move upon every heart to desire all that Jesus is for our eternal good, we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.